chain of events, cause and effect. We analyze what went right and what went wrong as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chigi, and this is Causality. Causality is entirely supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Premium supporters have access to high-quality versions of episodes as well as bonus material from all of our shows not available anywhere else. Just visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. I-35 West Bridge 9340 connects the Interstate 35 West over the Mississippi River, running approximately north-south, about a half mile, that's 875 metres, downstream of the St. Anthony Falls in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in the United States. The I-35W bridge design began on the 22nd of October 1962, as the state of Minnesota entered into an agreement with the civil engineering firm Sverdup and Parcel, with project handover to the MNDOT, that's the Minnesota Department of Transportation. The final design of the I-35W Mississippi River Bridge 9340, locally known as the St. Anthony Falls Bridge, was an eight-lane steel Warren Truss with verticals arch bridge that was 1,907 feet long, or 581 metres in total. That said, the deck truss span was 1,064 feet long, that's 324 metres, with the remaining length being the approaching spans. The bridge opened in 1967 and was Minnesota's third busiest at the time, carrying approximately 140,000 vehicles every day. The bridge consisted of 13 reinforced concrete piers and 14 spans in total, which were numbered from south to north, although only piers 5 through 8 were across the river section. The rest were on the approach spans. Nodes, otherwise called connection points, on the main trusses were numbered from zero, starting on the sole node outside the outer pier on each end, incrementally towards the centre of the bridge, resulting in zero to 14, where 14 was the centre node, incrementally from south to north. The north to south nodes were numbered in a mirror, from zero prime to 13 prime. To help visualise this, node 14 is exactly in the centre, Node 13 south and 13 prime north are one node outwards from that centre node. So that's 27 nodes in total for the entire centre truss section. In addition, there is a top and a bottom for each, U for upper nodes at the roadway level and L for lower nodes closest to the river below. And finally, each side of the bridge denoted as the western or eastern nodes. Summing up, therefore, node U14W is the central node on the upper deck on the western side. Right then, orientation is important to understand, considering what follows. A few other terms relating to truss construction, though. A gusset plate is a flat, generally steel thick plate that is either welded, riveted or bolted to two or more interconnecting beams and girders to columns. A cord is a connecting beam directly between nodes. Upper cords are horizontal in line with the deck, whereas lower cords are differing angles based on their position in the arch. A diagonal connects the upper and lower cords on an angle, diagonally. A vertical connects the upper and lower cords vertically. Maybe that one's obvious too. Right? Excellent. Now that's out of the way, let's talk about the incident itself. In July of 2007, construction works began by Progressive Contractors Incorporated with an expected completion in late October. The works included removing the wear course on the concrete roadway to a depth of 2 inches or 50 millimetres and repaving it with a matching 2 inch thick new concrete overlay, 
removing any damaged concrete from the curbing and channeling and replacing it, rebuilding the expansion joints, replacing the anti-icing system spray discs, and replacing the sensors embedded in the deck. On Wednesday, the 1st of August 2007, construction work was continuing on a span of the bridge. At this stage, PCI were progressing work on the 8th overlay segment of the project. The two outside northbound lanes and the two inside southbound lanes were both closed to traffic during this stage of the construction. At 8am, the morning temperature was recorded at 73.5 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 23 Celsius. From approximately 12pm onwards, concrete mixing and pouring equipment, as well as progressive loads of sand and gravel aggregate, were delivered into position along the construction zone. Due to the quick setting requirement and relatively low volumes of concrete required for an overlay pour, mixing on deck is the most practical option, with ready-mix trucks considered to be impractical. By approximately 2.30pm local time, that's US Central Daylight Time, the equipment and materials had been put into position, ready for a timed 7pm pour. The overlay pour would be for a 530 feet, that's 160 metre long section, of the two inside southbound lanes, toward the southern end of the centre deck section between nodes 14 and 0. At 6.01pm, the temperature was recorded at 92.1 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 33.4 degrees Celsius, though on the 26th of July, some six days earlier, it had been 6 degrees Fahrenheit or 3 Celsius hotter. At 6.04pm, a total of 111 vehicles were positioned on the bridge, including 25 that were construction-related vehicles, and the remaining 86 public vehicles were primarily light passenger vehicles but included a school bus that was carrying 63 students. A few seconds before 6.04pm and 57 seconds, the U10 ends of the compression diagonals L9U10 shifted laterally under stress from the bridge load and the gusset plates failed around the ends of the diagonals. As a result, the remaining nodes had additional downward load applied to them, both around and through the diagonals for L9U10. As U10 east and west nodes dropped, positive bending loads increased in the gusset plates still attached to the upper cord members of the nodes U910 and U1011, causing the plates to fracture along a vertical line at the centre of each node. The deck no longer had support from the U10 nodes, transferring their load to the upper portion of their verticals U10-L10. Tension loads now presented to the lower cords. The lateral bracing, the deck and its stringers then pulled the southern deck truss segment northward and completely off piers 5 and 6. Lower cord members L9-L10 fractured adjacent to the L9 nodes at this point and separation of the southern main truss segment was effectively complete, with the truss now dropping down towards the river. Lower cord members L7L8 landed on the rollers on the top of Pier 6, and lower cord member L7L8 East fractured from the nodes at each end, allowing the truss from node 8 through to node 4 to fall towards the eastern side. On the north side of the centre span, the gusset plates around U10 Prime Ends of diagonals L9'U10' were fractured and deformed in the same fashion, allowing the remaining portions of the U10' nodes to be pulled downward through the diagonals. Compression buckling developed in the lower cords of the main truss between the L11' and L9' nodes, allowing the U10' nodes to drop, causing the plates to fracture along a vertical line at the centre of those nodes as well. At this point, separation of the northern deck truss segment was effectively complete and the centre portion of the truss fell into the river, 
shortly after the southern end. At 6.05pm, a motion-activated surveillance camera at the Lower St Anthony Falls Dam captured the moment the bridge section collapsed. In total, 23 frames were taken that would prove invaluable in reconstructing what had happened in the subsequent investigation. The entire process of collapse had taken just six seconds. After the collapse had completed, 17 vehicles were now in the river or on a submerged portion of the bridge deck. 911 was called in less than a minute by onlookers and after confirming the bridge wasn't where it was supposed to be, dispatchers put out a distress call for all available services to assist at 6.08pm. An estimated 100 members of the public scrambled to assist those involved with between 30 to 40 jumping directly into the river to assist those trapped in the water. The first emergency services arrived at the scene five minutes after the collapse with the police following shortly thereafter by fire and medical personnel. Within an hour, 12 other public safety agencies had responded with 28 watercraft assisting with the river rescue operation. At 7.27pm, the fire department incident commander changed the water operations from rescue to recover. In total, 145 people had injuries requiring a hospital visit and 13 people had died. The NTSB had representatives on the ground in the early hours of the following day and began their investigation immediately, however released their final report on the 19th of December 2008, nearly one and a half years later. The investigation explored multiple aspects including the bridge design, modifications as well as local conditions and bridge conditions leading up to and on the day of the incident. We'll cover each key area in turn. Let's start with the design. As stated earlier, the bridge design was awarded to Sverdrup and Parcel Associates Incorporated of St. Louis, Missouri in 1962. They would later become Sverdrup Corporation and then they were acquired by Jacobs Engineering Group Incorporated in 1999. Sverdrup and Parcel's contract was to produce the following items. 1. A preliminary engineering report. 2. Final design plans checked by a registered professional engineer. And 3. Checked design computations. The final design plans were certified by the Sverdrup and Parcel project manager, who was a registered professional engineer, on the 4th of March 1965 and subsequently approved by MNDOT on the 18th of June 1965, two weeks later. The design had been based on the 1961 American Association of State Highway Officials, that's AASHO, standard specifications for highway bridges the applicable 1961 and 1962 interim specifications for that standard, and the 1964 Minnesota Highway Department standard specification for highway construction. The bridge was constructed by Hercon Incorporated, with the erection of the structural steel engineered and staged by the Industrial Construction Division of Allied Structural Steel Company, who also were the steel fabricator. The phenomenon of metal fatigue cracking in bridges, something that is taken as common knowledge in mechanical and civil engineering today, wasn't well understood until the mid to late 1970s around the world. In the late 1970s, an assessment was undertaken of all bridges in the United States National Bridge Inventory, and the I-35W bridge was identified as being a bridge with a fracture-critical truss member as it was a non-load path redundant bridge. That means that if a specific truss member fails, the entire bridge would collapse. In 2007, the inventory contained approximately 600,000 bridges in total and 19,273 were identified as having fracture-critical truss members. The I-35W bridge was one of them. Let's talk a little bit about the bridge modifications. 
There were three major renovation or modification projects undertaken following the opening of the bridge to traffic in 1967, of which the third was underway when the bridge collapsed. In the early 1970s, multiple similar bridges began exhibiting reinforcing bar corrosion, where the wear course was only one and a half inches—that's 38 millimeters thick—like the I-35W bridge at that time. Therefore, in 1977, the wear course was stripped to one quarter of an inch or six millimeters, and an additional two inches or 50 millimeters of low slump concrete was added. This modification added just over three million pounds—that's one and a half thousand tons of dead load to the bridge, an increase of 13.4 percent over the original design. By 1998, the median barrier and outside safety railings no longer complied with the then current safety standards, and the incidence of winter traffic collisions on the bridge suggested the fitting of an anti-icing system would improve traffic safety during the winter months. The project involved replacing the median barrier, upgrading the existing outside concrete railings, improving water drainage, repairing damaged concrete slab and some piers, retrofitting cross girders, replacing damaged bolts, as well as installing an anti-icing system that consisted of 38 valve units and 76 spray nozzles to apply potassium acetate as needed. These additions permanently increased the dead load on the bridge. By about 1.13 million pounds, or 565 tons, or 6.1 percent. Regarding the construction that was underway at the time, it's important to discuss the staging of the materials in preparation for the concrete pour. PCI were concerned about the additional time and labor that would be necessary to move materials and clean up the area afterward if their equipment was placed too far off the bridge, away from the pour location. Therefore, the PCI job foreman that had been on the I-35W bridge project for about three weeks told the investigation he had asked an MNDOT bridge construction inspector if materials could be staged on the bridge to save time. The inspector allegedly stated he had no concerns about the staging of materials, and the job foreman took this response as permission to proceed. The staging included four dumps of sand, four dumps of gravel, and three cement tankers. Although only one tanker would be staged on the deck at any given time. In addition, there was a water tanker truck with three thousand gallons—that's eleven point four kiloliters of water. One concrete mixer, one small loader excavator, and four self-propelled walk-behind or ride-along machines for moving materials around. This had a total estimated weight of 578,735 pounds, or about 289 tons, and that was positioned over the inner west side of the bridge in the centre span just north of Pier Six. The MNDOT standard specifications for construction 1509 and 1510 applied to this project, and Any contract of this type at the time, and stated that, and I quote: "The project engineer is the engineer with one immediate charge of the engineering details of the construction project, two responsibility for the administration and satisfactory completion of the project, three authority commensurate with the duties delegated to the engineer, and four authority to reject defective material and to suspend any work that is being improperly performed." Further, inspectors employed by the department will be authorized to inspect all work done and materials furnished. The inspectors will not be authorized to alter or waive provisions of the contract, to issue instructions contrary to the contract, or to act for the contractor.
As a representative of the engineer, the inspector will report progress and acceptability of the work being performed and will call to the attention of the contractor any failures and infringements on the part of the contractor. Should any dispute arise as to the materials or work performance, the inspector may reject materials and suspend operations until the question at issue can be referred to and be decided by the engineer. End quote. From this, it's not very clear that only the project engineer has the authority to authorise the staging of construction loads on behalf of the MNDOT. It suggests the project engineer should be consulted on engineering details, for which staging might qualify, perhaps? So, on that point, where was the project engineer? The project engineer stated they typically visited the job site three or four times each week, but relied on the project construction supervisor to escalate items of concern for them to address. The suggestion, therefore, is why wasn't this specific query raised with the project engineer that day, even if they weren't on site? Following the incident, the MNDOT stated that, and I quote, the contractor can request to place larger than legal loads on a new or remodeled bridge with MNDOT construction project engineer's approval. Although not a written policy, when a contractor proposes a load that exceeds legal loads, it is a practice for the MNDOT construction project engineer to consult with the regional construction engineer in the bridge office. End quote. Regarding their rationale behind on-bridge staging of materials, PCI stated to the investigators, and I quote, to meet the tight deadlines and being forced to operate within specific traffic configurations posed unique and very difficult obstacles. PCI on numerous occasions requested additional lane closures and additional full weekend closures, even formally requested to batch the wearing course material out of our nearby PCI plant site. These requests were denied. End quote. Perhaps the simple question is, could the bridge handle the full load? Interestingly, when the investigators re-ran the bridge load calculations using the Bridge Analysis and Rating System software, that's BARS for short, they concluded that for all of the structural members they considered, the construction loads were within safe operating limits. Having said that, BARS can only analyse a simple span truss and has no provision for the inclusion of gusset plates. Around 2007, BARS was being superseded by Virtus, a specialised load rating and design analysis software application for bridges specifically, developed by the FHWA, that's the Federal Highway Administration, and AASHTO. It also had no provision for the inclusion of gusset plates in its calculations. Why? Well, at that time, a common civil engineering base assumption in bridge structures is that gusset plates can be ignored as they are over-specified during design. The theory goes that if we overspec the gusset plates by two to three times, then they can be safely ignored in future stress and load calculations. So, the investigators turned their attention to the original gusset plate designs. The only document found that contained any calculations relating to the gusset plate thickness was a set of unchecked computation sheets dated between November 1963 and January of 1964. The calculations only considered forces carried by the upper and lower cord members and did not include any forces associated with the diagonal and vertical members. Specifically, they didn't include consideration for shear, direct stress or flexure, which was required under the AASHO standard specifications for highway bridges of the time. 
At the March 1964 Conference and Design Review, MNDOT and the FHWA directed Sverdrup and Parcel to eliminate T1 steel from all main trust members and instead to use A441 and A242 steel due to the limitations of manufacturing of T1 steel, leading to shorter lengths and hence more connection points in the bridge overall. The three types of steel we're discussing are all American Society for Testing Materials, that's ASTM, allowable stresses, which are the maximum stresses that should be experienced by any bridge component, each of them in turn. A242, 27,000 psi, that's three quarters to two and a half inches thick. A441, also 27,000 psi, less than three quarter of an inch thick. And A514, also called T1, is 45,000 psi, significantly more. The consequence of this decision was that A441 and A242 steel needed to be thicker and hence heavier than the original T1 steel design, and thus all components needed to be redesigned. There was a suggestion during the investigation that materials were substituted in the gusset plates without a redesign. However, the gusset plates at both U10 and L11 nodes were always specified to be 1.5 inch thick or 13mm A441 steel. These were unchanged from the preliminary design. The gusset plates at the U12 node were identified as half inch thick T1 steel in the computation sheets provided to the MNDOT but were changed to 1 inch thick A441 steel for the final design. This suggests that some nodes were revisited during the redesign and others were not. Samples taken from following the incident confirmed that the design-specified materials were installed at U10 and U11 nodes. Sverdrup and Parcel were required to submit checked design calculations for all aspects of the bridge and the floor truss gusset designs by Sverdrup and Parcel did include calculations for shear stress as required by the contract, just not for many of the upper nodes. The NTSB concluded that, and I quote, at the U10 and U10 prime and L11 and L11 prime nodes, the shearing forces were much larger than the cord splice tensile forces and the cord splice load methodology was inadequate by itself to produce an appropriately sized gusset plate. End quote. The varying gusset plate specifications and design details shows an inconsistent approach to the design and design review where it appears to have been a design oversight and a quality assurance failure. The investigators also found that the gusset plates for multiple nodes in the truss were also underdesigned, although not to the same extent as U10 and U10 prime and U11 and U11 prime. So why wasn't it caught at quality assurance? Sverdrup and Parcel's internal quality control coordination and checking procedures suggests QA was a part of their internal processes. However, no evidence could be provided that this had consistently occurred, especially in the area of gusset plates. Of course, in arrangements such as this, government departments generally have internal personnel that are registered professional engineers to perform some degree of design validation, even if it's only high level. Where they don't have this expertise, or that in-house expertise is just too busy, it's normal practice to have a second contract for design check with an independent company. The investigation concluded that neither the federal nor the state authorities evaluated the design of the gusset plates during the project nor was it standard practice for them to do so, concluding, and I quote, current federal and state design review procedures are inadequate to detect design errors in bridges, end quote. Let's talk about the inspection. 
In June 2003, URS, that's United Research Services, took approximately 225 photographs as part of a detailed bridge inspection. These photos were originally presented as 2 by 1.5 inch thumbnails, 6 to a page, in their final report to MNDOT at the time. The full-sized photographs were studied during the investigation, and whilst no physical measurements were taken during the URS inspection, visually, a deformation or bowing of the gusset plates was easily visible at U10 and U10 prime nodes. A second set of earlier photos taken in 1999 by University of Minnesota researchers also showed signs of bowing. However, their photo set was far smaller, it did show U10E in better quality. Neither the university nor URS reports made any mention of any deformation of the gusset plates. The worst case displacement visually calculated was 0.99 of an inch or 25.2 millimetres, which was quite significant. It is unclear when the deformations first began or their rate of progression due to lack of evidence. However, in an interview by the MNDOT, the Metro District Bridge Safety Inspection Engineer stated on record that he had observed the gusset plate bowing during inspections he participated in after joining the MNDOT in 1997. At that time, he had consulted with another inspector about the bowing that he had noticed and concluded, and I quote, that's fit up, that's construction, that's original construction. End quote. The conclusion was simply that it was construction-related damage that had always been there and not progressive deterioration as there were no other visible signs of distress such as peeling paint in and around that area, elongation of adjacent rivet holes, cracking at nearby welds of connected members or cracking or crushing of the bridge deck directly above the connection point. And so they shrugged it off. Hmm. Let's talk briefly about the counter-report. Why I mentioned the higher temperatures in the week prior to the incident has some limited relevance to the claims made by a subsequent alternative report. A lawyer, Chris Messerly, of Robbins, Kaplan, Miller and Cerisi, represented a consortium that had engaged an international consulting firm, Thornton Tomasetti of New York, to investigate the cause of the incident. The report is not publicly available so far as I can find. However, Mr. Messerly was quoted as saying, and I quote, The bridge's roller bearings were frozen, so it couldn't shift to relieve the stress. And because the bridge would not expand and move with the heat, it caused this catastrophic failure of L9, L11 West. End quote. He was also quoted summarizing the findings, stating, and I quote, It was only after the beam fractured that the U10 gusset plate broke. End quote. The report and lawyer consortium claimed that it was the consultant URS and PCI that were jointly responsible for placing construction loads on the bridge. In the NTSB report, they covered the state of the roller bearing specifically post-collapse, stating, and I quote, The wear patterns on the bearing sole plates indicated that the rollers had been moving annually by as much as 5 inches on Pier 5 and 2.5 inches on Pier 6, which was consistent with the design. And the wear patterns on the bearings at Pier 8 showed evidence of normal movement over a distance of 2.5 inches, similar to the amount of movement for the rollers in Pier 6. End quote. In 2003 and 2004, five separate inspections of the roller bearings were undertaken by URS under contract to the Minnesota Department of Transportation. The initial investigation in June 2003 raised some concerns surrounding the lack of free movement due to, and I quote, corrosion, debris, and paint buildup, end quote. 
However, subsequent measurements taken in November 2003, then January, March and July of 2004, did in fact indicate that movement had been occurring through checking through seasonal variation. Let's talk about the aftermath. The importance of the I-35W arterial accelerated the construction of a replacement bridge in its place, with Flatiron Constructors and Manson Construction Company awarded the contract for $234 million US dollars to build its replacement on the 19th of September 2007. At 5am local time on the 18th of September 2008, the new bridge opened to traffic only 14 months after the original bridge had collapsed. The 35W Bridge Remembrance Garden Memorial, located just off West River Parkway, was open to the public on the fourth anniversary of the bridge collapse. The MNDOT subsequently revised Section 1513 of its standard specifications for construction to include fixed limits for material stockpiles, construction vehicles and such per span, with a 30-day prior deviation request requirement. They also included clarification of the role of approver of deviations by the engineer, in late 2007, the MNDOT had developed a procedure for performing engineering reviews of gusset plates on the 25 truss bridges in their state. Safety Recommendation H-08-1 and the FHWA's Technical Advisory T5140.29 were issued in January 2008, coming into effect during a recently started gusset plate review program by the MNDOT. As a direct result of these recalculations and bridge inspections, the DeSoto Bridge was permanently closed to traffic due to bowed gusset plates. The Blatnik Bridge had traffic lanes reduced whilst retrofitting took place to strengthen gusset plates determined to be deficient due to retrofit works having added dead load in the early 90s. The highways 41 and 61 bridges were also identified. There were more, but we'll leave it there. Following the incident, the MNDOT revised its Load and Resistance Factor Design, that's LRFD, Bridge Design Manual to require that, and I quote, all major bridges designed by consultants require an independent review be conducted by a second design firm, end quote. The purpose of this requirement is cited as being, and again I quote, specifically to reduce the potential for a design error in the contract plans, end quote. On the 2nd of May 2008, the state of Minnesota reached a $38 million US dollar agreement to compensate victims of the bridge collapse. By August of 2010, lawsuits against URS Corporation for failing to identify the gusset plate defamations during multiple bridge inspections prior to the collapse were settled for $52.4 million US dollars outside of court. The state of Minnesota brought a lawsuit against Jacobs Engineering Group, the successor of Sverdrup and Parcel, that made the design errors for the gusset plates which Jacobs appealed. However, in May of 2012, the United States Supreme Court turned down its appeal, resulting in Jacobs Engineering Group paying $8.9 million US dollars in November of 2012 to settle the lawsuit, although without admitting any wrongdoing. So what do we learn from all of this? What's fascinating to me is that the pieces of evidence from the inspections, when taken individually, could pass them off as being construction-related damage. But when you look at those gusset plates in the bigger picture, they were the same node mirrored in both east-west and north-south, which was not the exact order in which the bridge was constructed or that the parts had been supplied during construction. It's clear that there was some common cause for them all bowing, if only you step back and consider the more complete structure in its full context. So far as management of change goes, there's no evidence that the design calculations for the gusset plates were ever revisited. 
the civil engineering philosophy of the time where you just oversize the gusset plates so you don't have to worry about them is something we just shouldn't need to do anymore. Back in the day without computers, it took a long time to calculate using a slide rule and tables for all of the members in a truss. So I get the thought process behind that. But as a shortcut, it was never a good idea even back then. Today, we have powerful computers with advanced software modeling packages, so we can consider all of the elements in a design rather than ignoring some of them with questionable assumptions. Finally, completing a detailed and complete end-to-end design check is critical in any form of engineering, but few aspects more so than in civil structures and bridges. There is little detail in the NTSB report about the workload at the design firm at the time and whether it was competing priorities with too many other jobs, inexperienced, laziness, or some combination of these. Irrespective, if you take on the job, you take on the risk, and you need to ensure that you don't get it wrong. Design check is not an option. It's a requirement, always. The importance of design checks, both during the initial design as well as during design alterations through a management of change process, is once again top of the list. Beyond design errors, though, they could have caught this years earlier in their inspections. If you're doing inspections of anything, the larger the system or the structure, take time to consider the bigger picture as well as the local picture. One crack in isolation might not be a problem, but several distributed cracks could be a sign of something much worse. I really can't fault the outcomes following this incident in the scope of the Minnesota Department of Transportation and local regulations. They're exactly what I'd hoped for. Mandating independent design verification, review of other similar bridges and taking urgent actions on any of those that didn't comply, and clarification of construction restrictions, rules and roles. What's annoying, though, is that the review of existing structures was, in some respects, a bit localised. Other parts of the United States and the world as a whole would do well to learn from this. We have ageing infrastructure the world over. Nothing lasts forever. Putting time, effort and money into checking the health of our structures, remodelling them with computer software if we can, is more important than it has ever been before. But that costs money. Here's something to ponder. When you drive across a bridge that needs resurfacing, you might think, they need to fix this road. Maybe you should be thinking, I don't mind the road being a bit bumpy if it means the bridge is regularly tested, maintained and repaired. Because I'd rather drive through a small pothole on a safe bridge than drive on a smooth bridge that falls into the river. If you're enjoying Causality and you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Just visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. By popular request, Causality t-shirts have remained on sale, but there are only a handful left. Grab them while you can. When they're gone, they're gone. We've also just re-released Episode 1, BP Texas City, with the complete rewrite and re-recording. If you've never listened to the episode before, or if you've listened a long time ago, then re-download it and check it out today. A big thank you to all of our supporters. A special thank you to our silver producers, Mitch Bielger, Leslie, Shane O'Neill, Jared Roman, Joel Maher, Katerina Will, Chad During, Dave Jones, and Kellen Fridelius Fujimoto. And an extra special thank you to both of our gold producers, Stephen Bridal, and our gold producer, known only as R. 
causality is heavily researched and links to all materials used for the creation of this episode are contained in the show notes. You can find them in the text of the episode description of your podcast player or on our website. Causality is a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show and with the right podcast player, you can choose to stream value and boost with a message if you like. There's details on how along with a Boostergram leaderboard on our website. You can follow me on the Fediverse at chigi at engineer.space or the network at engnet at engineer.space. This was Causality. I'm John Chigi. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>